couple celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary at a restaurant and poof, a genie appeared and said, I'll grant you one wish each. And so she said, well, I want to travel the world. And poof, there were plane tickets all over the table. So then the husband, excited that she got her wish, said, I'd like a wife 30 years younger. And poof, he was 90. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with anything, but <laughs> anyways, <laughs> so far in the study of our book of Galatians, we have seen Paul have to defend his apostleship in chapter one, and then to defend the message that justification is uh, by faith alone, and then he wrote extensive theological arguments in chapters three and four to illustrate that salvation has always been by faith alone and not human effort. So as we begin today, this, this week and next week, the last section of this book, he's going to deal with another uh, accusation by the Judaizers against Paul. They said, to be saved by grace alone, without involving the requirement of the law being kept, would certainly lead to lawlessness and immoral, ungodly lifestyle. So in these next two chapters, Paul is going to explain that justification by faith alone does not lead to someone having a license to sin. Rather, liberty in Christ leads to godly living as believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> it is sound doctrine that always leads, can lead to holy living. It is not keeping a list of rules. A failure to understand our liberty as a believer in Christ can cause people to fall into a few different errors. One is that of Christian legalism, where you must look a certain way, act a certain way, refrain or do certain things, and then that is the mark of being spiritual. And people fall into that, and yet their hearts are cold and proud and far from God, and often suffocating and trying to be controlled by what other people say instead of it being the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and then there's another error in contrast, called antinomianism, which means to be against the law. And it's the thinking that individuals are not under the law any longer, any longer, and so they can do whatever it is that they please. But we're never free to disobey God's moral and ethical laws. It's always wrong to lie, to murder, to covet, to have idols in our hearts. So Paul begins this last section, or this part of this letter, by telling them, them and us, to maintain our liberty in Christ. He begins with saying we are to preserve our liberty. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Paul warns the Galatians that they are in danger of placing themselves back under bondage as slaves. They had believed the gospel message that had been brought to them and have been set free from trying to keep rules, whatever their pagan religious system was, in order to appease or please their false gods. <coughs> the Galatians were told to stand firm against anyone who would want to enslave them again. He uses the word yoke, uh, like a farm animal that ha would have that fastened around their neck so that they would then be able to carry a heavy load. And it really is an accurate picture of what it means to be burdened down and heavy laden. And that is, after all, the context of what Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden from trying to do all these things. 
and he will give us rest. So the false teachers wanted to take their liberty away and put them back under this yoke of slavery. Paul goes on to say that being enslaved to religious rules is ultimately going to end in death. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. That's quite a statement. As God's spokesman and apostle, uh, the apostle Paul says, if you become circumcised, you go through with this and have this procedure done, you cannot really be saved. Paul's telling these Gentiles who were never circumcised as babies that if they were to do so for the purpose of being justified before God, then the works of Jesus on the cross are of no benefit to them. That is because their faith and trust would be in the fact that they had gotten circumcised rather than in Christ alone for their salvation. And anyone who thinks that the death of Christ on the cross and his payment for our sin is not sufficient for salvation, any individual, any church that teaches that you must do something additionally uh, in order to be saved, than the atoning work Christ did on the cross, the statement is true. Christ is of no benefit to you. To believe you have to be baptized or be a part of a denomination or keep certain religious festivals or eat a certain way um, means Christ doesn't benefit you because your faith isn't in him alone. It's in what you are doing. Christ has to be the one and only Savior, and not him plus anything else. It would never stop with just one more thing anyways, would it? I mean, after circumcision, and it would be, and oh, did we mention this too? Because that's how legalism goes. So, if anyone thinks that they can be saved by doing something else, it is, that, and they were relying on that before God, then they become a slave again of trying to earn favor from God. And that would require perfection, a subject he's already addressed in keeping all of the law. And why is it so very dangerous? He says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. To be severed means to be separated or loosed from. Should these Galatians have this surgery done, cutting away of the male foreskin as their basis for being declared right before God, then they would actually be cutting themselves off from Christ. This strong warning is to anyone who has heard the gospel of salvation, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, who understands this in their minds, intellectually accepts this, and then they decide to walk away from Christ as the only way and join whatever that says you have to do all these things. This is the sin of apostasy, a purposeful, deliberate turning from Christ after knowing the truth and having been convinced of who he was at one time. This could never happen to a genuine believer, but to those who have at one time seemed and appeared to have embraced the gospel and understand the message of grace and then decided to turn away from it, <clears throat> they are at risk of being severed from him forever. This is not a verse that applies to true believers. They could never fall from grace because salvation is by God's grace. It is the work of God from beginning to end, not our work of keeping it. But sadly, <clears throat> I'm skipping. I had to cut out so much of my message. I have lines all over to make room. So forget, I'm just, if I don't have good segues, it's because they're all crossed up. 
I'm trying to cover so much material. Let's go on to verse 5 and 6. Believers wait for the hope of righteousness. For we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Notice Paul includes himself, we, here, speaking of all true believers, are waiting for that one day when we are free from this burden of sin and will be completely righteous. Since every believer has been imputed with the righteousness of Christ and declared righteous the moment we trust him for our salvation, now we all await for that day when God will make us completely and perfectly righteous, the moment we are glorified with him. Now we struggle as the Holy Spirit seeks to conform and transform us into the image of Christ, but one day the struggle will be over. That's great news, and this is a day that all of us are waiting for. Paul goes on to say in verse 6 that in Christ it doesn't matter if a person is circumcised or not. True saving faith has always expressed itself in obedience to the Lord and love for him and love for other people. And that brings us to the harmful effects of what these false teachers were doing and how it impacts the church. They deter believers from obeying the word of God. Paul says, you were running, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. So one has to picture a foot race in the world of athletics when you read this verse. And Paul speaks of their running as a picture of their spiritual progress. After salvation, their pursuit was to obey the Lord. And they began so well, but now they're veering off the course. Not only that, it was the message of these Judaizers who are actually putting obstacles in their running lane. The God who called these Galatians is not behind the error being taught. And any religion and any religious teacher from any denomination within Christendom or anything else who claims that you have to do something in addition, Paul says, is not from God. The truth is, such error is from Satan, and he's so good and he's so deceptive at mixing truth and error. And this is what he uh, does so well. And it gets believers off course. And they get their focus off the Lord and start thinking about self. Another dangerous hindrance from false teachers is in verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. He leaves the running world and now enters the kitchen for a bakery picture. Just a pinch of yeast in bread causes the whole lump of dough to rise. And so it is with theological error. No matter how small it might seem, just a tiny, tiny bit of error from just one person can affect and touch everyone and everything and pollute entire congregations that can be destroyed as this evil spreads and often splits churches as well. Another dangerous impact from false teachers is they confuse believers. In verse 10, Paul is convinced that the majority at Galatia in the region would not follow this false teaching because of his confidence that he had that the Lord had truly saved them. But whoever was this primary leader and, uh, and all of his associates, he makes it clear one day there will be severe judgment. Matthew 18, 6, Jesus said, it's better you were never born or you had a millstone thrown around your neck and cast into the sea than you would ever bring spiritual harm to any little child. And by that, it is speaking of all of the children of the Father in heaven. This severity is, due, is directly due to the serious damage 
and harm that comes to believers. The word disturb that Paul uses in the Greek means to shake back and forth. And that is what these men were doing in bringing confusion to the church at Galatia, that the way of salvation was altered and the meaning of the cross misunderstood. And that's why God has given faithful shepherds who are to protect us by exp explaining the truth of scripture to us. Now another grief brought on by false teachers is seen in verse 11. But I, Paul, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? The truth is, such people oppress believers. Apparently the Judaizers were saying, well, Paul preached the same message. Look at he had Timothy circumcised. But as you know from your questions today in our study, Paul had Timothy circumcised had nothing to do with salvation. That was because he was taking him doing Jewish evangelism and ministry work and he couldn't bring a man in uncircumcised. And that is why Timothy was circumcised. But Paul did not teach circumcision as necessary for salvation. And the proof is in the fact that he's being persecuted all the time by the religious Jewish people. So the cross was offensive, and you know what? It still is offensive because it does offend very religious people because very religious people feel very good about themselves and how religious they are and how good they are and really how God has really got a good thing going having them as his followers. So when you tell them that all their goodness is nothing or whatever, they, they, they react in anger. I mean, how many people have been put to death through the centuries? by the religious community. Paul states that he wished that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. In other words, those who oppose the cross and say you have to be circumcised to make sure you're saved, why not? Why don't they just go all the way and castrate themselves? If a little is good, more is better, right? So that was a, that was a common practice in many of the pagan religions. So we need to be very careful and take seriously the danger Paul is talking about here. Paul goes on then to talk about our freedom in the grace of Christ does not mean a freedom to sin. And those who have been set free from sin's bondage actually behave differently. They wouldn't stay in that bondage. Freedom in Christ is not, is not used to indulge the flesh. In verse 13, Paul says, But you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Opportunity here speaks of a base of operations, a place where a military offensive is launched. And our freedom does not mean that we are free to live by our flesh, controlling what we do and say. The word flesh here speaks of that part of us that does not want to do what God wants us to do. But anyone who lives uh, doing whatever they please they think they're free to do whatever they want to do, but in reality, they're completely enslaved to themselves and to their sinful lusts. Often professing believers have misused this word liberty to justify doing whatever they want and indulging their flesh in sin, claiming that God has given them freedom. After all, they can just repent and, you know, they're fine. However, a true believer realizes they are, not, they are now free to obey God and are free from continuing uh, from that lifestyle of sin. It doesn't have to dominate anymore. Titus 3 and Ephesians 2 speaks of believers who once were, past tense, enslaved to sin and all kinds of lusts and pleasures. But all that changes when we are set free from the bondage 
of sin and living according to our own lusts. True believers use their freedom to serve others. And so he goes on in verse 13 to say, through love, serve one another. When Jesus sets a person free, he does this so that they in turn will love him and love others by serving others. And just as a slave was set free to serve their master, we are voluntarily doing service for others out of love. And the real freedom and salvation is that the Spirit sets us free from a self-absorbed, self-centered life, consumed by thinking only about ourselves. It is a miserable existence. And this is the entire teaching of the New Testament. In a moment, Paul's going to get specific about serving others by displaying the fruit of the Spirit. But before that, he goes on to say the law of God is fulfilled when believers love. And verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments really come down to two things, loving God and loving people. And that is exactly what Jesus answered that man who asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? The message of the New Testament is that we don't try to keep the law as a means of salvation. Once we are declared righteous by grace through faith, we will keep the moral aspects of the law. We, <clears throat> we don't ignore what God says. We know we are to be holy because he is holy. We love people not out of obligation, but out of obedience and love for our great Savior. So then our freedom should never hurt others. That's what he makes it clear. Biting and devouring one another is completely contrary to showing love. I mean, we've just endured a year with this whole political scene, and all that is, is in this world's worldly perspective is biting and devouring one another. How grievous that God's children, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, would even enter into that. This isn't our home. This isn't our problem. We're just here to shine for him. We have no business biting and devouring one another because we don't agree on whatever goes on. That must grieve God so greatly. If we fail to lay down our lives for others, we will then put our own needs first, our own opinions first, and we all struggle with that sin of pride, thinking we know what's best. But I'll tell you this, I've witnessed it firsthand. In the name of standing up for truth, I'm speaking for the truth. I have witnessed the most wicked of biting and devouring people with spiteful words. How that must grieve God. And people really feel justified in doing it because they're standing up for what's true. I was on a missions trip years ago, a conference in another country. And as this group of missionaries were gathered together, a very legalistic group, uh, they, all they did the whole evening was talk about this other missionary who isn't like them. He's so much blah, blah, blah. It was just, it was stunning. It was, it was this biting and devouring, absolutely grievous to the Lord. Well, that brings us to the conflict with the flesh, because that's where we have the problem, isn't it? How do we grow in sanctification? It seems that that ongoing struggle with our flesh can be very discouraging. The truth is, we as believers live in a constant state of war where we must continually, moment by moment, be engaged in the war, putting to death our flesh. I mean, if you're not even aware that you're in the war, <laughs> you don't show up at a war you know, field, a battlefield, like, where am I going, what am I doing? I mean, you have to know you're in a battle the moment you wake up. 
I'm only you speak a word before anybody in your household, to anybody in your household, <laughs> you are in a war. So, what must we do to put to death this flesh of ours? Well, walk by the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The word walk is a metaphor for making progress, moving forward, spiritual growth. Um, there's no sudden experience where you're just perfectly sanctified one day. Spiritual growth is a moment-by-moment, step-by-step daily walk. And in the Greek, the thought is keep on walking because it is to be continual forward progress. The Spirit indwells every believer the moment we come to faith in Jesus. Romans 8 9 makes that clear. That is the work of God. However, Paul gives us a command in this verse making us responsible to daily live in the realm of the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment, we are to make sure we are in submission to the Holy Spirit. To walk by the Spirit is to place ourselves under his influence and in obedience to the Word of God. The Word shows us, the Bible shows us words and thoughts of the Spirit. Colossians 3, 16 and 17 tells us that Christ's words dwelling in us richly will be seen in our behavior as it's the same as we are filled with the Spirit. For the word to dwell in us richly is to be under the control of the Spirit so that we're doing what he says. In other words, our minds are to be saturated with truths from scriptures, our actions and our reactions to people, what they say, what they do. Uh, we are to respond as the word tells us to respond. In obeying, you will not then carry out the desires of your flesh. Paul certainly understood the battle that every believer has in the flesh, and our sinful inclinations to do what is wrong will always be a battle until we get home to glory. But those sinful desires can be put to death. We do not have to gratify our flesh. If we would fill our minds with the things of the Spirit, with the truth of God's Word, be thinking about it throughout the day, then we don't have to indulge our flesh and ignore that little voice that you don't want to hear. We all know from experience that just having discipline or determination never works in the battle with sin. I mean, January 1st is coming, all kinds of resolutions that people never live up to, because that's a human effort sometimes. Rather, though, we must fill our minds with spiritual truth, think about God's word, and then we can subdue and starve our fleshly desires. Our heart and our mind must be filled with the truth of God's word, and that is the only way we're going to have victory over our sin. As you well know, the, the battlefield is in our mind. We must continually be renewing our minds, which means we have to have godly thoughts that come from the Spirit, that come from Scripture, and then when we blow it, we admit that we blew it. When we've sinned against whoever we're living with or know or brothers and sisters or family members, we ask forgiveness and we have godly thoughts fill our minds and we kill the ungodly thoughts we are having. Paul reminded the Colossians, set your mind on the things above. This isn't what life is about here. Get an eternal perspective on how you view your day and the car that cut you off or the person who was rude. I mean, come on. That's life on this world, in this world. We just studied Philippians 4, where we're, to, we're commanded 
not to worry, not to be anxious. We're commanded to think on the things that are true and lovely and honorable, dwell on these things. Paul then goes on to say here in verse 17 that the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that, and here's the key, you may not do the things that you please. There it is. <laughs> there it is. This is the war every believer is in every moment that we live. We choose to do the wrong thing and the spirit within us opposes us. And then we choose to do the right thing and obey the Lord and our flesh opposes us because we want what we want. It is a battle. And Paul says the same things about his own struggle in Romans 7.15. It's not easy to kill our flesh because we all know we want what we want when we want it how we want it. And no one should interfere with that. Actually, everybody should think like us and agree with us because we know everything best, right? <laughs> so that is our flesh. But if we walk by the Spirit and submit to what the Word tells us, He will enable us to have victory as we starve those desires of the flesh instead of feeding them. Keeping, uh, keeping a law could never make us godly. Only being led by the Spirit as we fill our minds with truth from God's Word will enable us to have victory over sin. And this is why we must fight our flesh. We must make time to think on Scripture, to memorize it. We must radically cut out the things in our life that tempt us in the struggles of sin, whether it's what you're reading, the type of books you're reading, whether it's the TV shows you watch or movies or music, whatever it is. So much of the entertainment that we have um, desensitizes us and we don't even realize the sin creeping in and the acceptance, you know, that it's just there because we're just used to it. I think we all know from experience, I know I do, that when I listen to a, a message every day, and I've mentioned before, I mean, come on, in this world of technology, we can listen any, any speaker, any time, any convenient moment. But when we're listening to a message every day, when we're listening to music that uplifts us and reminds us of biblical truth, when we're reading great spiritual books or wonderful godly biographies, we will have greater victory over sin in our lives. I mean, it's how we're using our time, it's how we're using our mind. But when we fail to discipline our thought life and let the world's influence subtly creep in, we fail to kill our flesh. So, where are you in the war zone today? I hope you're engaged in the war. I hope you even know you're in it. Otherwise, you are losing, that's for sure. Uh, defeated, miserable, hating the impact of your sinful actions and the hurt that it does for others. I don't know if that's where you're at. Then take radical steps to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Deny yourself what you think you have to have to be happy. And instead, fill your thought life with truth from his word. And just because the spirit lives in us does not mean we'll automatically have victory over our sin. We are responsible for our actions and we need to take the steps to overcome fleshly desires every moment of the day. Paul then goes on to give the list of the deeds of the flesh. He gives an abbreviated list, as many other places in scripture of these lists. This behavior is the result 
is not rather the result of a poor upbringing or a bad education uh, or a difficult environment. Paul just gives a list of our, what our flesh is capable of. This is just a few of the things. Immorality, which speaks of any illicit sexual behavior. From the Greek word here, it's where we get our English word pornography. And then impurity, sensuality, has the idea of sexually crude language, which you know if you're hearing it a lot on TV, then you know it's going to impact you whether you think it is or not. Uh, the, the lack of sexual restraint, no shame or concern for behavior on how it affects others. Then the sin of idolatry is putting anything before the one true God. A spouse, a child, health, beauty, money, you put an idol. Sorcery is a word that includes the use of drugs, uh, spells, black magic, talking to the dead. The next category of deeds of the flesh are more social, and they are always at the core of the breakdown of the family. Husbands and wives, parents and children, family members, brothers and sisters in the same church and in the body of Christ. When these sins of the flesh uh, are reign, well, strife and jealousy produce quarrels, resentment, outbursts of anger, which involves rage and temper tantrums. It's, you don't have to just go in the nursery to see a temper tantrum. We all have our versions of them. Some of them are silent temper tantrums and punishment by silence. The list goes on to speak of disputes and dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. These are just some of the deeds of the flesh. And Paul concludes by giving us a sober warning, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, all of us are guilty of some of these sins some of the time, but Paul is warning that those who practice such things as a lifestyle will simply not be in heaven because they are not born again. In other words, it is a continual way of their life. This is not true of a true believer. When we act in the flesh, we, we hate our sin, we repent, we ask forgiveness, and we try to honor the Lord. But regardless of a profession that a person has made, if their life is dominated by such sins of the flesh, then the reality is they are still enslaved to their flesh because they've never, given, uh, a new, never been given a new nature and do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Now, Paul will contrast the works of the flesh with those of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. We've already seen what our flesh produces, and probably everyone who lives with you has seen it well, too. <clears throat> but it is the Spirit who produces his fruit in the life of every single believer. No human effort could ever produce this fruit. This is a singular fruit because all of these virtues are a unit or different aspects of the same fruit. To some degree, every believer has all of this fruit being developed in their lives. Is, uh, it is a fruit, it is this fruit rather, of the Spirit that is the outward indication that you really are a true believer and that the Spirit does indeed dwell in you. You and I could never possibly have these virtues without the Spirit indwelling us. Now certainly we all feel discouraged when we don't see as much fruit in our life as we'd like to see. 
Cultivation and development of fruit doesn't happen overnight. The way we bear more fruit is by walking in the Spirit. And the entire point of what Paul has been saying is what we just covered. The Spirit produces his fruit as we walk in accordance to his word. And Paul lists these nine virtues beginning with love, and love really encompasses all the other fruit. Uh, love is that attitude of selflessly, sacrificially serving others, putting their interests ahead of our own. Joy is an attitude in our heart that regardless of how awful, awful circumstances might be, we still have joy because we know things are right between us and God. Peace, very close. There is an inner calmness that comes from knowing it is well with my soul. Patience or long-suffering is that attitude of suffering for a long time without losing our temper and striking back in anger. It is the complete opposite of outbursts of anger. Kindness is <clears throat> being ready to help others and meet their needs, and then goodness is very similar. It involves being kind to people who are undeserving of kindness and doing so in a generous way. And faithfulness speaks of loyalty and dependability, people who actually keep their word. And gentleness is that attitude of a humble submission to God as we accept his dealing in our lives, not striking back <clears throat> at people who hurt us. Self-control is a restraint of our physical desires in all the areas of our lives. Sexual desires, eating desires, drinking, you name it. So these are the fruit of the Holy Spirit that he produces in the life of every single believer. Obviously with some there is more fruit than others, but it still exists to some degree even if it is a raisin. Uh, ladies, whatever struggles you may be going through, if you will walk by the domination of the Holy Spirit and be thinking on his word, meditating on his word, he will produce and he will continually develop these fruits in your life, this fruit in your life, and you will fulfill his will and not the lust of your flesh. Paul closes out the section by reminding believers that even though we are crucified in the flesh, the moment of our salvation, we must continually crucify our flesh daily and deny ourselves and turn away from sin. We are to put to death the members of your earthly body. Crucify its passions and its desires. Not coddle them. Not do things to help them be happy. Kill them. We really must see truly how wicked and repulsive our fleshly desires are, especially to God. We must see our flesh for what it really wants to do to us. It wants to harm us, and, kill, and we need to kill it by repenting of our sin. Otherwise, spiritual ruin and regret will consume you. To crucify our flesh, uh, we must be very decisive. You can't think about it as an option, if I'm up to it today. No, it has to be an aggressive action. Just as you embrace the cross the moment of your salvation, you turn from your sin, you repented, and you're identified with Christ at the cross, so you need to make sure you take up your cross every day and execute your fleshly desires. If you don't, I guarantee you this, you will find a way to justify that your attitude and your actions are okay. You will rationalize it away in your mind, and our pride has a great way of doing that. 
We are not to make any provision for the flesh. We are to walk by the Spirit. Paul repeats that word walk, but he uses a different Greek word here than from our earlier verse 16. And this is walk a straight line, like a military formation. If we want to win the battle to overcome our flesh, we have to keep in line and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And this requires us to be disciplined in our Bible study, Bible reading, worship, honoring him, thinking about him, practicing his presence, like he doesn't go away for three-fourths of the day because you never think about him. Not only must we be merciless to crucify our flesh, but we must discipline to stay on the path set for us by the Holy Spirit. There is no place for being passive in this war, ladies. We are in a war, so will you fight the good fight today? Are you just going to be have a steamroller of your flesh dominate? Will you deal a fatal blow to your flesh? When you have that tone <laughs> come out, I apply this greatly to myself, you know, at that moment, you're aware. This is the flesh speaking this way. <laughs> this is not the spirit. And deal with it. Deal with the flesh that you <clears throat> declare war on your anger, your impatience, on your self-centeredness, on your sin of worry, on your self-absorption, on your coveting, on your jealousy and resentment. Declare war. Crucify it. Don't bring it down from the cross and coddle it. Don't make any provision for your flesh. Repent and kill it. Father, I thank you for your word and how practical it is. Lord, all of us are on this journey of life, and we want to honor you when we come to know you. We want to glorify you in our lives. And we can say those words, but the nitty-gritty, Lord, is denying ourselves the things that we just want to do, to coddle ourselves or to have our own way or to speak our own mind or to... Whatever, Lord, I just pray that you would convict each of us in the area that you put your finger on as we're thinking about what needs to be killed in our flesh. Lord, I pray that you give each woman here victory, help her to recognize that she is in a war, and to put the deeds of the flesh to death. And when we blow it, Lord, I pray we would be quick to repent, quick to ask forgiveness, and get back set on the walk forward. To honor you in Jesus' name.